1: Welcome to The Water Cooler, everybody. I'm David Brody. Glad you're with us. It's Monday, October 19, 2020. And guess what? Joe Biden's campaign says he has no more public events until Thursday of this week. That's the day of the final presidential debate. That's right. Joe's going to disappear at a plain sight for four straight days with just 15 to go before the election. This is like a major limp towards the finish line. Meanwhile, look at this. Uh, This was the scene in Prescott, Arizona today before President Trump's big rally. Thousands lining up at the crack of dawn to get in. The polls are saying one thing, But our eyes are seeing something totally different. And how about this past weekend in Newport Beach, California? It was like a huge Trump ticker tape parade as thousands lined the streets as his motorcade passed on by. You're not seeing any of that with Biden. I mean, for Biden, maybe it's a couple of people socially distanced at a cookout. That's about it we're going to discuss. Also on the show today, President Trump makes a spiritual pit stop. At a church in Vegas, and not one of those get married quick churches with Elvis as the pastor, not one of those, we're going to discuss faith and the vote on today's show. And Hunter Biden, that's right, I said his name. Are Twitter and Facebook going to censor this part of the show? I mean, after all, they are censoring a big story about Hunter and his famous father. We're going to take a closer look at the growing menace of tech tyrants how to get conservatives. But first, our newsmaker, you know him. America knows him. I've known him for a while now. Former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer is here. He's out with his new book, Leading America, President Trump's Commitment to People, Patriotism, and Capitalism. Sean, really appreciate you being here. Thanks.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, David. Good to see you.
1: Good to see you, sir. All right, uh, before we get to the book, what is your sense of this election? I mean, the polls tell us one thing, my eyes are seeing something totally different when I look at all the momentum. It's not Joe-mentum, it's something different. Uh, What's your sense, Sean?
2: I, I think it's extremely close. Um, And I think that right now it's a base plus election, meaning that everybody on both sides is trying to get their team out there. And the Trump campaign's political operation, I think, is going to be its saving grace. All of the momentum and all of the battleground state polls show a tightening of the race uh, in President Trump's favor. The question is, is it close enough and good enough in enough states? I think right now he is on that razor's edge that that will fall his way.
1: John, I want to get right to the book, though. Uh, Let's talk about it. A great book, by the way, and a lot about the media in it. Um, Talk to me about your concerns about where the media has gone specifically. It it is not the media that you once knew 10, 20, 30 years ago. I I want you to talk about that. You speak a lot about that in the book.
2: Yeah, specifically, David, when you start delving into journalism schools and what this younger generation of quote-unquote journalists are being taught, it shows you that they're, they're not being taught to necessarily report on the facts and dig deep on stories, as much as it, you look at these mission statements and it talks about them learning to make the world a better place. And when they're being taught by liberals and indoctrinated by liberals in terms of the curriculum and the course materials, it's no wonder that the media is the way they are. They also, it, it's amazing when you delve into the scenarios of how they cover stories, what they cover, and the difference between how they cover folks on the right and the left, And the examples in the book, I I think, will make most people have at least one, if not five, aha moments in saying, now I get it. Now I realize that I understand why they act the way that they do. Um, In in researching the book, I I was literally blown away myself with the degree to which ideology has really taken over that industry. Um, And that there's clearly, you saw this with the Hunter Biden story, you now have all of these major... Media outlets, the washington post the new york times helping to suppress the story of the new york post because they don't like its sourcing and the funny thing is they've been dead wrong on on you know this narrative that without any evidence they're the ones who say well it must have come from the russians the director of national intelligence says that's not true um and yet here they are going out there and, and and questioning it they didn't have a problem when it was the president's taxes wondering about hacked material
1: well, you know, you're pretty prophetic in this book too, because you have a whole chapter devoted to tech tyrants versus Trump. I mean, you you go, you I mean, you you called it. Uh, I know people were seeing it, but you really break it down in the book. Uh, talk to me about Facebook and Twitter. I mean, are they in essence out to get this president?
2: Yeah, and you've seen in the last couple of days. I wasn't even obviously. I had to stop writing the book at one point this spring, but now you have these tech tyrants that 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 are coming out on the record, or at least the comments of some of them coming out, making it very clear that. They don't like the president. They want him to lose, and they should do everything in their power to see that that happens.
1: John, I want to ask you. You wrote something in the book about the media. This is what you say. First of all, paraphrasing here, you said, look, you don't believe that the media is the enemy of the people. I mean, that, that phrase specifically. But you do say this. You say the media are the enemy of civil discourse. Break that down for us. Explain what you mean.
2: Well, one of the things that I write about is my experience in Dancing with the Stars, And I talk about the fact that, like, you know, the funny thing is for someone on the right, I never get beat up on the right for having conversations with folks on the left. It's the left that, you know, gets beat up for talking to people on the right. This group of so-called liberal and intolerant and inclusive folks. But when I was on Dancing with the Stars and I would have conversations with folks, the media would then go out and say, can you believe these two people are actually having a conversation? And it was like They want to talk about the need for civility, and then when it occurs, they write about how ridiculous it is, right? So it's like they want it both ways. They want to be able to talk about how we need more of it, and then when there are examples of it occurring, they try to tear people apart about it.
1: Yeah. I would speak about your experience on Dancing with the Stars. You devote a pretty decent-sized portion of the book at the beginning towards it. Uh, what, what did you make overall of your time there? Because it did seem like a, a pretty happy family overall. I know Tom Bergeron, well, maybe there was some tension there. But what, what, what's your sense of what happened there?
2: Well, I loved it. I, I enjoyed my experience there. As I say in the book, it's one of the best experiences I had. I went in extremely nervous for some pretty obvious reasons. <laughs> um, but I had a blast doing it, um, but it was just amazing to me, though, to see places like the New York Times and others really try to tear it apart and make it like it was some kind of big deal. It's a reality dancing show, for goodness sake, and yet you had these folks um, on the left in the media trying to act like this was some kind of, you know, curing of cancer, or breaking of the atom in the sense that they were like, oh my God, this is a travesty. I'm not really sure why. Uh, but in any case, I loved it. I think it's a great show. It was fun to be part of, uh, it's just a sad, it's sad to see that so many of the folks, um, that are claiming to, to want, you know, less, less politics, less hostility in our society are the very ones that kind of attack the whole notion of it.
1: Yeah. By the way, uh, in that picture, we just showed, you clearly had, and I'm just going to say it now, cause you say it in the book, you had the spray tan going on what were they spray tanning you before the show
2: yeah sunday nights man that was part of the routine i i thought i talked about it in the book to the first time they were like you know hey you can you can we, you know do this sunday night and i was like well i'm only gonna be on the show for like a week or two so you might as well try it and holy smokes you know <laughs>
1: Listen, I've got to ask you about Democrats. You you talk about in the book, you say they're even worse since you were press secretary. How bad has it gotten the politics of today? I mean, it's it's fascinating to just see. I mean, look, they were they were bad when when you were there. I mean, you got a lot of grief and and now it seems to exponentially even grow from there.
2: Yeah, and there's fewer of them because of COVID, right? So, um It's amazing how it's just gotten more and more hostile, more and more personal, more and more vitriolic. But I think part of it is a lot of these folks in the press corps understand what's at stake, and so they're going to do everything that they can at this point um, to really uh, hammer home the point, because in their mind, this election um, is is a big part of who they are as people and, and part of the agenda that they're pushing.
1: Let me ask you about President Trump. I mean, he, he hasn't been able to get a break from this media since day one. Um, why do you think they have it out for this president exactly? I mean, you know, it's not just that he's a Republican president like a George H.W. or excuse me, George Bush or George H.W. Bush. I mean, he's not that. He's in a totally different mold. So what makes him different from maybe previous Republican presidents? What has got their hide up so much?
2: Well, I think two things. One is that he's serious about changing the culture in Washington. And two is he doesn't care about needing them. And I think being sucked up to for an interview that the president has been very clear that he doesn't need them and that, you know, undermines their ego.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm curious about the upcoming election, Sean, as we, since we have you here. What do you make of uh, all of this mail-in balloting? I know the, the liberals want to call it absentee balloting, but come on, we know the difference. There's a huge, big difference. It's a, on yeah, a there, massive scale.
2: A- there's a massive difference between absentee ballots in which the president supports, the president has requested, and where a voter proactively reaches out and requests a ballot that has to be verified before it's sent to them, and what they're doing in states like Nevada, where they're literally sending every person who's moved away, who's died, a ballot that just then sits in their mailbox with the potential of someone scooping it up. And the media knows this. The idea that this is happening and that the rules are changing this close to an election, um, should, it should, what in normal cases, cause huge outcry, but because I think they support uh, this agenda, they hate the president, that they're willing to overlook it all. When
1: you say support the agenda, what are what you, you're talking about the mail-in balloting, the concept of mail-in balloting on a massive scale? Yeah, yeah. And
2: because they, I mean, they're, they're I mean, they, they, I think they like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. They like the policies to the left and so that they're willing to, to do and overlook a lot to ensure that that happens.
1: Yeah. I'm wondering about the election, how you see this going. Do you, do you necessarily think we're going to wake up November 4th, the morning of, and just say we're going to have a winner, or you think this is going to this is going to be a while?
2: Well, that assumes that a lot of us are going to go to sleep in the first place. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't. I mean, I think it's going to be a few days, if not longer.
1: hmm And what do you think's going to what, what potentially are we going to see? Are we going to see lawsuits? Is this going to go to the Supreme oh, Court?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think there's a way that you're not going to see lawsuits. But I think, you know, you look at what Pennsylvania did when they changed the rules regarding their absentee ballots. They're allowing now ballots without a signature to come in multiple days. I mean, a, in a postmark yeah. to come in multiple days after the election. That just doesn't even pass the smell test. The governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, yeah. saying that she's not going to allow artificial deadlines by political people. Well, those are called secretaries of state and governors. Yeah. So I don't really know how that would work otherwise. Um she doesn't yeah. want to set a date by which all ballots have to get counted. My sure. guess is that you're going to see a lot of a lot of uh, lawsuits and filings of, of various run. things.
1: Sean Spicer, right, you've been fantastic leading America's the book. Everybody got to go buy it. Back in a moment. And welcome back, everybody, to The Water Cooler. All right, look, when it comes to evangelicals and Donald Trump, we heard that there, it's a match made in heaven, so to speak. Uh, but look, he's going to need all of those evangelicals and more to win in 2020. However, the Biden campaign says, hey, wait a minute, we've got something to say when it comes to faith, and they are they have a major and a concerted effort to do so. We want to bring in uh, American theologian and the founder of Sojourners, Jim wallace uh, to the program jim thanks for being here i really appreciate it
4: sure david good to see you again
1: good to see you jim uh well tell me i mean I, I i gotta tell you it is night and day in terms of what hillary clinton did not do in 2016 compared to what joe biden is doing in 2020 when it comes to the faith vote explain uh, some of that to our audience please
4: well i i was already speaking on these things as you know david a long time ago so it has nothing to do with the candidate there are faith issues at stake in this election, and I think one big faith issue is racism. And racism should bring us together across political lines. We're all made in the image of God, Genesis 1 says, the likeness of God. And I want to see Christians across our political boundaries saying that racism is real, and is an issue in this election, particularly because our brothers and sisters of color feel so threatened right now. And that should concern all of us uh, Christians, no matter who we are.
1: Jim, I, I know uh, the president has, uh, you know, has this uh, accusation against him that he is uh, dabbles in racism, is a racist. We've heard a lot of things about it, uh, yet evangelicals supporting him nonetheless because they don't believe that to be so. And we can have that debate another day. But, but I am curious about the fact that this president has denounced multiple times the KKK and white supremacy, though the media doesn't let it go. Uh, they, Can you help me understand that? He has denounced it multiple times.
4: Well, he he didn't denounce it in his last debate. David, I'm going to suggest this. Mm -hmm. Every Christian ask every candidate for office, no matter who who they are, to condemn white supremacy during their campaigns. Everyone say it and say clearly. And every pastor in every Sunday before the election should condemn white supremacy, too, and say racism racial justice should be a condition for how Christians vote. I mean, I was watching the news just last week, and I saw all these lines in Georgia and in Texas. And these are places where a lot of voters of color are really fearful of having their votes suppressed or intimidated. And here they showed up in record numbers, reminding me, David, of South Africa, the first free election in South Africa. And that's what many of Christians of color feel is at stake, that kind of election for themselves and their children. So I always say to white Christians, listen to your Black brothers and sisters. Listen to them. They're terrified. They're afraid. They say this is a life and death issue for them and their kids. That's how the Black body of Christ is feeling. And white Christians just need to listen to your Black brothers and sisters.
1: You know, the, uh, the president put out, Jim, this platinum plan uh, as it relates to a- uh, African Americans and communities. And I know he's talked about other things before, but this new platinum plan talks about some economic opportunities. But it also says it will denounce and, and actually make the KKK, uh, just like Antifa, a, t- a terrorist organization. I mean, in, in essence, he, he's gone. I mean, it's right there in black and white. I, I just it, shouldn't that be part of the calculation, too?
4: You know, David, it is all there in black and white, and black Christians are overwhelmingly voting against Donald Trump because they fear for their children. So you can lay out a plan. You can say he has denounced, he didn't denounce, it is black and white. What does it mean to white Christians? What does it mean that overwhelmingly black Christians are voting against Donald Trump because they're afraid of him? For their children's future. What does it mean to white Christians to be voting so differently than their Black Christian friends who have seen all these plans and heard all the words? It's who they believe in, who they trust. Uh, yeah. This is really, I think this president is appealing to the dark side of America's history again and again and again. We have our best We have our worst. We have our better angels and our worst demons. Our worst demons have to do with America's original sin of racism, and Donald Trump is appealing to our worst demons, and every black Christian pastor I know feels that. So what do you do with that as white Christians? What do you do with being so much different and not understanding what black Christians are seeing and feeling in this election? What do we do with it?
1: Right. So, Jim, I guess the question then becomes, what do you think of what's going to happen here in this election? I mean, not to get into the prediction business, but it does show that all polls suggest that Biden should win uh, and some suggesting maybe in a landslide. How concerned would you be? I mean, what would happen if Donald Trump actually won a second term? I mean, I would think that would be more than deflating. That would just be devastating to, to folks like yourself and others.
4: Well, I'll go back to what I said before. Uh, what does it mean for white Christians to understand that black Christians overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, are saying that if Donald Trump wins this election, they're fearful of their children's future. Now, that's a that's just a fact. You got to deal with that fact. And so, devastating uh, would be the word because this is a it's a body of Christ issue. Do we care about what's happening to our black? As the sisters or not. I mean, it really is. What, what it, does white Christian, what mm-hmm. defines the phrase white Christian? Is it the word Christian or the word white? And this election will help reveal that to many black, black Christians for whom this is clear. This is like a South African election hmm. to a lot of black, black Christians who are being targeted. David, you know, they're being targeted by voter suppression, intimidation. That's a fact. That's a fact. They know they're being targeted and they're rising up and standing up and clergy are coming to support them at the polls. If they're intimidated, you'll have clergy in collars standing at the polls, protecting black voters from suppression and intimidation. It's it's yeah. an altar call. We're calling clergy to the polls to protect Black votes.
1: I got less than 30 seconds, but when you say South African election, uh, you've you've explained some of it there. Who, who are you? Su- who are you suggesting is is responsible for that?
4: Oh, I think I think Donald Trump has been actively fueling racial grievance, division, fear, and yeah. even hate. I think he's been actively fueling it. He's running on it. That's who he is. And that's what most black Christians think. That's just a fact.
1: Jim Wallace, a pleasure to have you today. Love to have you back sometime. So thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. Really do. All right. When we come back, uh, censorship and social media, they go hand in hand. Uh, Where's the censorship sign? Madison, we got to get the censorship. We'll get the censorship sign because in the next segment, we're going to talk about that. Facebook, Twitter, Hunter Biden, Eugerval, back in a moment. And welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. All right, we're gonna talk about Hunter Biden and censorship. So, that's right, I'm putting the sign up. I kind of feel like the segment looks better this way, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, But we're going to talk about censorship uh, when it comes to the Hunter Biden story that's been censored all over the place. That was that New York Post story about the emails. uh, And boy, I tell you what, it it just keeps going on and on. It doesn't stop. We want to bring in uh, Darren Myman, uh, the CEO of DatChat right now, who can talk about a lot of these issues as it relates to social media. Darren, I really appreciate you joining us here.
5: Uh, thanks for having us. We're really excited to talk about this and, and just how important this topic's really becoming.
1: Well, talk to me about kind of a, not the metamorphosis, but in essence, the increase in what Facebook and Twitter have done here over the years. I mean, we kind of knew about this from years ago, but it has just gotten so blatant to the point where, uh, you know, the, they're censoring everything on, under the sun uh, from a conservative
5: perspective, at least. Well, what's What's your sense of that? If you look at it, you know, since we've got into this uh you know, twelve months before the election, it it's really become very blatant on their their part. And if you think about what, you know, they're willing to censor the president of the United States, political parties, campaigns, well, what's gonna stop them from censoring us? What well, if one day they say, you know, we don't like your position on meat and all of a sudden uh, you know, they're censoring anything that goes through them. But the, the real thing that we should all be concerned about, it's not just censoring what we're sharing, it's that they're censoring what we're able to share via private message and direct message. And, and that's really concerning and a little bit terrifying. It's almost like they declared a, a privacy and personal free speech Armageddon to a great extent.
1: Explain a little bit about that. Uh, You mentioned uh, messaging and chatting and all that. What do you mean? I think a lot of people want to understand because they know about Twitter and Facebook in terms of like posts that people make, a Hunter Biden story, for example. But what do you mean in terms of people's actual uh, messages between each other?
5: So so if you look at Facebook in particular, most people don't realize there are really three messaging platforms. It's uh, WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook Messenger how you could share things among them. And they're actually bringing all the platforms together over the next year or so. They've already started the process. So the censorship that happened with the Hunter Biden story, very concerning. But if you want to share it privately, it was also being censored, which they probably have their AI, you know, reviewing all the messages you're about to send. And we, we need to start realizing just how powerful they become and it, like I said, this has really escalated over the last year or so, pre-election. And everyone has a right to, you know express themselves., uh, yeah, it just seems to be more on the right that they're, um, you know, censoring, but eventually it's going to come around because if they're not worried about censoring a president, you think they're gonna be concerned about what we say and censoring us in the future? Well, that's an excellent point. That's, that, that's a good point, Darren. I wanna show you a little bit of something you guys
1: are working on. It's a public awareness uh, campaign. You put out a press release about it, and then you also have a petition that you want people to sign. Can you explain a little bit more about uh, this
5: petition that we're seeing? Yeah, the idea is to let people express their concern. You know, there are two ways to really, you know, express that concern. One, you can sign the petition. And the other is, you know, uh, send them a message. And this is a way to get a lot of people together and let them know that, you know, we're allowed to decide what's right and wrong or what we want to see and not see. It's very easy to, to block something on your own or just go right by it. Who are they to be the arbiters of the truth? They can anoint themselves the arbiter of truth. And we're bringing awareness, we believe that our privacy has been under attack, but now they've added to that uh, free speech is under attack. And and that's our our right. You know, that's very important and they don't realize that if we act together, we are the strongest group out there. You know, we have a right to decide. Yeah, so you know, sign the petition. Go to dashat.com. There's a petition on there, and watch the video on really how they're they're attacking our privacy.
1: Dan, conservatives obviously are the ones frustrated for now, at least, uh, and they've been frustrated for many, many years. They, they want the government to regulate uh, these private companies more and more. But it does make you wonder, well, wait a minute, aren't conservatives for less government, less regulation? So aren't they in a bit of a conundrum here in terms of they want the government to step in? That's typically not what conservatives typically want to
5: do. Well, if you look at it, in this case, it's warranted, the stepping over the line. So, you know, there's a Section 230 that allows you to act as a platform. My company, DadChat, acts as a platform, and we don't censor. We can censor because we can't see anything you share on our social network. But once you cross that line and start censoring like they did with this Hunter Biden story and the the two or three dozen other incidents prior to that, well, are you a publisher now or are you a platform? You know, is it like the phone company where you can't control what people say? Or is it like a, a newspaper where you have an editorial board? You kind of can't be both. And if you're gonna be both, then you're subject to a little bit more regulation. If you're gonna be a platform. We believe that you have the same right to privacy online that you have in your living room. And that's why we set up the DatChat private social network to do just that. We can't see what you post. Things don't have to last forever. And the only people that could see it is what, who you decide. And you get many different social
1: networks. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and it's a valuable technology, valuable company, obviously. Uh, uh, Darren, I am curious, though, about the future here. You know, we hear about Facebook and Twitter, and there's are such giants in the industry. No one thinks they're ever going to go away. but. You know, already we're seeing a movement like, for example, Parler, uh, you know, a lot of people going there instead of Twitter. I mean, is should we be concerned or should Twitter really be concerned that they're playing with fire here and that if petitions like yours and others succeed, that they're going to have to figure out what their future is exactly? We have about 30 seconds yeah. or so.
5: Yeah, I, I think it's time to realize that we're their product. You know, right. we're what they need, our eyeballs. And if people leave. And if they keep infringing on our rights to free speech, they're going to find themselves in a very precarious situation. They sell advertising. And without our eyeballs, they can't sell that advertising. And we have the ultimate power. And that's one of the reasons we started the petition, to let them know that, you know, we're getting angry. And it doesn't matter if you're right or left or red or blue. This is about being American our right to free speech. Darren Myman, the CEO
1: of DatChat, really appreciate your time here today. Great information, thank you so much.
5: Uh, thanks for having us, really appreciate it. Get
1: Darren back on the show because anytime we feel like we're gonna be, that's right, censored, We got to call Darren. We'll do it. Uh, By the way, who are we going to call next? Scott Rasmussen, not Ghostbusters. Uh, He's host of the uh, Just the Polls podcast here on Just the News. And he is going to break down all the polling that you're hearing about Trump and Biden, what's up, what's down. And honestly, what's sideways? Because a lot of it right now is sideways. We're back in a moment here on The Water pool. And welcome back everybody to the water cooler. Look, I can't make sense of it. I mean, polls here, polls there, but she says Biden's leading some by a lot, some by a little, some in the middle. Uh, and then I see all these Trump rallies out there and uh, you know, the boats with the flags and everybody. I have no idea what to believe at this point, but there is someone that knows a whole lot more than me, which would probably be a lot of people in the world, but Scott Rasmussen uh, joins us, the pollster, uh, pollster extraordinaire, and of course, host of just the polls here justthenews.com scott thanks for being here i appreciate
6: it oh david it's great to be with you you know with two weeks to go in a presidential election season there's a lot of intensity and people want to see what they or see what they want to see Uh, i think the state of the race is pretty clear our latest justthenews.com poll shows joe biden has a steady lead not a huge lead Uh, And we're in a place where you would have to say he is the slight favorite to win this election. The battleground state polls that we've done in Florida, North Carolina, uh, and Pennsylvania all show the president down just a little bit. But I want to be clear, we don't really know what turnout is going to be because millions of people don't know what they're going to do yet. Uh, We've never polled in a pandemic before, so while the race is leaning in Biden's direction, uh, it's still close enough that especially if something happens in the debate on Thursday night or, or if the president gets a break somewhere else, he could tighten this and we may have a toss-up again.
1: Scott, what are you seeing as a trend line over the last couple of months? I mean, are Biden's numbers holding steady? Have they been, have they been slipping a
6: little? What, what's your sense? Well, if you went from July until just a couple of weeks ago, what we saw consistent consistently was the idea that pessimism about the pandemic was declining. And the less people worried about the pandemic, the better it was for President Trump. And I want to be clear, it's not that people said it's not a problem, but pessimism was inching downwards. And then the president tested positive. And from that moment on, uh, pessimism spiked again. And it's you know it's moving its way back down again. But but that was a real blow between the, the testing positive in that first debate. Uh, President Trump lost a couple of points in the polls. Joe Biden didn't go up. And now we're going to want now we're going to wait and see if he can make make that ground back up.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it just seems to me like he's got this, what, 14, 15 days here. I mean, there's a, there's a window here, right, where, uh, you know, he always wants to talk optimistically. He's out of covid. He's dancing on the stage every place he goes. I mean, this, this could potentially help him then.
6: It, it could, um, you know, and it probably does help with some segments of the population. For Democrats, you know, they look at this and say, oh my gosh, uh, he shouldn't be out in public, he's, he's contagious, but he's never going to win those votes anyhow. I think for some voters, the message that COVID is something that we have to deal with and recognize and move forward and adapt, uh, but it's not the end of the world, that may help a little bit. But again, the race has been fairly steady. Um, It has been a fairly steady Biden lead. Right now, the president needs to improve a couple of points, and he needs to get some breaks in key swing states.
1: Yeah. Speaking of those key swing states, let's go through a couple of them, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida. Why don't we start with Pennsylvania? I mean, I would say I would think the keystone state is literally the key for Trump. I know there are a lot of keys, but he's got to have he's got to have Pennsylvania somewhere along the line. Or if he doesn't, he's got other tricky math to get to 270.
6: Well, you're right. Uh, you know, Four years ago, I remember talking about the idea that it was fairly easy to show how the president could get to 263 electoral votes. You just didn't know where he'd go over the top. And in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin were the answers to that. Pennsylvania has been a huge Republican hope for many years. Uh, right now, the president is trailing Republican turnout. He barely pulls to a uh, toss-up level there, uh, but this is going to be a simple, a simple equation. Uh, Do the voters in Philadelphia, do so many people show up to vote and mail in their votes in Philadelphia and the immediate surrounding area to overwhelm the rest of the state? Because this is a state that greatly reflects the urban-rural split in America. Uh, One of the things that, that Pennsylvania is potentially going to be known for is it could be 100 times worse than Florida in the 2000 election with the hanging chads. If this election gets to be close, we probably won't know the winner for about three or four weeks. And Pennsylvania is one of the reasons. They've never dealt with mass mail-in voting before, and every single ballot will be scrutinized.
1: Yeah, and these naked ballots, especially, that could add a whole different... Oh, uh, it's... That could be a problem for sure. Yeah. Um, Scott, I want to ask you also about Pennsylvania just real quick because Erie County was that that county that went for uh, Obama. It's a pretty strong Democrat county, but it flipped in 2016. Are you watching Erie County? I, I know Bucks County is important in terms of getting the voter turnout for the Dems, but Erie County, is, it seems to be like a bellwether to a degree.
6: Well sure, it was one of the 206 pivot counties in the country that went from Obama twice to uh, to Trump. Uh, But actually, the key in in Pennsylvania were were rural counties that voted for Mitt Romney, but the turnout was way up and the support for the Republican candidate was way up in 2016. It is those rural voters that I'll be watching the most in Pennsylvania.
1: All right. And what about Florida? I mean, the the president's home state, if you will, that's what he calls it. Uh, Where is he now? And especially as it relates to Hispanics, we understand he's doing better down there than many people might think.
6: You know, right now, my latest polling at politicalIQ.com shows that uh, the president is down by two points in Florida, Uh, but when we do these alternative turnout models, we try to look and see what happens, you know, if Republican groups show up a little bit more or Democratic groups show up a little bit more, uh, the president is ahead by a point with a strong Republican turnout model. What that tells me is, you know, this race is so close in Florida, yeah, the president's doing a little better with Hispanic voters. Um, partly that's a a lack of enthusiasm for Joe Biden, but the president is also struggling a bit among seniors, uh, because of COVID.
5: Yeah.
1: I've got about 30 seconds or so left. I got to ask you about North Carolina. What's the lay of the ground there? There's so many different states to go through. I know Arizona is a big one too. Maybe you can quickly do Arizona and North Carolina in 30 seconds. Good luck, Scott.
6: (laughs) Okay. Very simply. Florida and North Carolina are absolutely essential. There is no way the president gets reelected without winning those two states. In both states, he is down by a couple of points, but wins with a strong Republican turnout. If he wins those two states, then he's got to do well in Arizona or Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, maybe even Minnesota. He's got to pull off some surprises. But... The best hope for Joe Biden is quite the opposite. He hopes that he wins Florida by enough that it's decided on election night and this whole thing is over. Um, if the president wins there, then we have a lot more states to look at.
1: Scott Rasmussen, I could talk to you all day. Literally, I could. So I'd love to have you back. We'll have you back soon. If look forward right. to it. All right, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Scott Rasmussen uh, here on The Water Cooler. I got to get into methodology with him, with non-college educated voters. We'll talk about that next time. All right. When we come back, the last sip. Uh, I've got a few things to say about CNN and Jake Tapper. I'm a bit of a clamp. We are justthenews.com, the water cooler part of a plethora, that's right, I said plethora of shows here on uh, the network, and so uh, we want to also get, uh, find out what's happening uh, there on the dot-com side of things, justthenews.com, Sophie Mann, uh, back with us, uh, an extended vacation. An good, extended
0: vacation. Good to see you. <laughs> good to
1: see you. We're not going to talk about your extended vacation. No, maybe yeah. later. No, that's a separate segment. That's the next block, folks, <laughs> yeah. uh, if you stay tuned. It's, uh, anyhow, uh, tell us what's going on. What do you got?
0: Well, so today we have a fun story out of San Francisco where, um, We've seen a pattern of this happening this summer as racial unrest um, sort of escalates throughout the country and certain social justice movements begin to take form. One major theme we've seen is buildings, monuments, statues being renamed and removed. Mm -hmm. Um, So in San Francisco, the, the Unified School District is considering renaming about a third of its public schools, which is about 45 schools that have been named after figures who we've now decided, they've now decided, you know, no longer stand the test of time and have questionable backgrounds, meaning You know, maybe they've been oppressive to a certain community or they owned slaves or what have you. The funny thing about this story, or I don't know if funny is the right word, but we'll see. Why not? Is that Senator Dianne Feinstein is on this list now of questionable figures. She, the, she is still currently a senator um, representing the great state of California. Um, and there is an elementary school named after her in San Francisco that is considering removing her name from its, um, from its building. Why? What? Specifically because it's interesting. It seems like somebody dug up an old newspaper report from 1984, oh, from goodness. a newspaper called the Worker's Vanguard, which was a communist newspaper that was sort of documenting everything going on in Berkeley during that historic period. Mm-hmm. Um, and what she's being flagged for, flagged, being That's, used as a funny word in this case, is actually raising a Confederate flag over the city's civic center that was torn down, and which she insisted was later replaced with you know another Confederate flag. So she was sticking to her guns on this one. Um, and it's just this singular report, this thing that happened almost 40 years ago. Right. Yeah, but now they're, you know, Diane Feinstein has become the latest problematic figure. There is some speculation that this is happening because um, Feinstein met some criticism last week for what uh, people on the left, and especially the progressive left, felt was a light questioning session of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, um, and
1: the Lindsey Graham hug too. Exactly,
0: yes, mm-hmm. uh, just showing, showing sort of that collegial spirit that uh, people don't always want to see in this deeply partisan world. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see it. We'll see if she gets to keep her name on the school, but it's it's pretty wild to see that like anybody can be subject to this.
1: That's fascinating. She's been a senator for so long so during long. all of this time. Now the drug- cancel culture can can get anybody. Yeah, can get anybody. It really can. Thanks, Sophie. Of course. I appreciate it. All right, uh, we're back tomorrow. We've got a lot of guests on the show. I'm going to check
2: the rundown. We'll see you tomorrow.